Returning to the program is someone that we can actually say needs no introduction. The airplane with which he broke the sound barrier is hanging from the ceiling of the National Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. He went from being a private in the Army to being a combat fighter in World War II. After being the first man in history to fly an airplane at supersonic speeds, he then ran the astronaut training program at Edwards Air Force Base, and closed out his career as a general. His story is the key one in Tom Wolfe's legendary book, The Right Stuff, which, by the way, was turned into a pretty damn good movie. General Yeager, welcome back to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much, Doug. General, we ended our last discussion talking about uh, uh, your relationship with General and future President Dwight Eisenhower. But you mentioned a rather funny story in your book about the first time you met a president. In this case, it was Harry Truman. You'd won the uh, Collier Trophy, a very distinguished flying award, and were invited to the White House to meet the president. Your folks went with you, but your dad, being a lifelong Republican, wasn't, wasn't too wild about Truman a and actually wouldn't shake his hand. He would not shake. He'd stand across the room. And Mom, of course, she uh, took over and... And she, she visited with Truman, and they were talking about making cornbread. And uh, she, she was, wasn't dumb. She, she, Dad is screwed up, you know. <laughs> and uh, hell, it, but the, the Secretary of Defense was there, and the Secretary of the Air Force, and they just cracked up. They couldn't believe it. <laughs> but that's, that's the way it goes. And General, in, uh, in your books, you talk a lot about your friendship with Jackie Cochran, one of the most famous uh, female flyers ever. And I gather that you and she had some very interesting adventures. Well, Jackie was president of FAI, Federation Aeronautique International. And basically, they had their annual convention in Moscow. And she got permission from the foreign secretary of Russia to bring her airplane into Russia. Uh, it was a Lockheed Lodestar twin engine. I was in the Air War College in school. And, and uh, she went to the chief staff and asked, could I go as her co-pilot and keep her from getting lost? And the chief said, I don't see nothing wrong with that. And so he called an Air War College, and they said, you, you don't send Air War College students out of class. And, and boy, the old man banged his test. said, you'll publish orders on him, and that's it. I didn't have a very good relationship with the commander down at the university when this happened. And of course, I got with Jackie, and I knew her very well. I'd flown with her in F-86s when she set speed records and uh, 104s and other airplanes. And she wasn't a hell of a good pilot, and uh, except she hadn't been in foreign countries or file flight plans and working with the foreign countries. It's very strict. you got to do exactly what you say. And so I went along. I was sent as she in the airplane and her secretary and two maids, and that was it. And I did all the navigating going into Russia. I was using whack charts. And I didn't 
do anything wrong. It said right. I wore civilian clothes. Right. I had a civilian passport. It didn't mention my military rank or anything. And it worked fine for about a week. Then they presented the FAI Gold Medal Award to, a, I think, Gregorian, the first Russian in space. And he, they were looking at the previous recipient. There's Captain Chuck Yeager. And they, they, the Russians put it together. So right away they wanted to talk to you. Well, I'd, I'd done nothing wrong, right. except I had a civilian passport and I didn't mention the military. And they, uh, they were having trouble with the MiG-21s comp with compressor salts. Mm -hmm. And basically, they, we we'd solved our problems with the 104s. And they, uh, they were quite surprised that, that the United States let, would let me come to Russia. And it was, it was interesting. They didn't learn anything. It wasn't in Aviation Week. So. Well, I'm sure there were a few people that were concerned that the Russians just uh, might want to try to keep you. They can't. It's too too public. Every country is represented. Jackie had befriended Nikolai McCoyan, who was a foreign foreign secretary. His son was a colonel in the, in the Soviet Air Force as a test pilot. So I talked to him quite a bit. But he, you know, they were kind of weird people about security. We not only went into Russia. We were in Bulgaria. Sofia, Bulgaria, and, and Romania, all the aero clubs of the world. She was the president. Right. So we, we traveled down, and uh, one place we were in, in uh, Sofia, Bulgaria, she was talking to this Russian general who was our escort. And uh, we were in a hotel room, and she wanted to go out of Bulgaria into Tur Turkey. Mm -hmm. There's a border, they border each other. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the Turks and the Bulgarians hate each other. And so this Russian general said, she said, I want to go into Turkey from Bulgaria. She said, you can't. The border's closed. They hate each other. You cannot fly in. They'll shoot you down. And uh, she said, well, she gets her little black book out and gets on the goddamn phone. And she's got the chief staff of Turkey's Air Force on the phone about two minutes flat. That's the way mm -hmm. she operated mm -hmm. And she says, you know, I'm, I'm in Sofia, Bulgaria, and I want to fly down to mm -hmm. Ankara, Turkey. And this idiot Russian general, and that was a big mistake, <laughs> says, says I can't fly into Turkey from here. He just reached over, put his hand on the cradle, shut the goddamn phone off. That Miss Cargan, you've got one hour to get out of Bulgaria, and you're going over across Poland. We made it. We made it airborne. I had two MiG-19s on our wings all the way out of Bulgaria. General, we had a chance to interview a man that was a test pilot for Howard Hughes on the show some years back. I'm curious, did you ever have a chance to meet Mr. Hughes? I met Mr. Hughes when he was built the, the, his big flow plane. He asked for me to come down after I broke Mach 1 and explain to him what we'd been doing and and I went down and spent three days. He's really a brilliant engineer and a good, very good pilot. Well, Howard Hughes is, is famous for being kind of a recluse and, and eccentric in his later years. Uh, I guess you, didn't, you did not witness any of that? He never did, to tell you the truth. Really? That's just a hell of a good press. And even though the movie, Howard Hughes, if you saw that, it was so wrong. 
General, the, the effort to break the sound barrier is something that took a, a lot of time and effort and preparation. Um, let's talk about that. The Navy was generating publicity, bad publicity, because they had developed the D-558. Now, you got to go back and into the complicated world of NASA and the Army Air Corps or later, and what you, what you find is contractors, you know, have test pilots. Now, those test pilots fly over big bonus money. Now, if a guy's a chief test pilot for Convair at San Diego and they come out with a new airplane, who flies it first? This guy, their chief test pilot. Now, if it's a fighter and he's a chief test pilot during the days of when they're building bombers, he's, he's a bomber trained pilot. But being senior and this fighter comes out, he takes the first few flights. And they're not qualified to do that because they're trained in bombers, okay. not in fighters. A lot of things went on in those days where we, to save money and stuff like this, the Air Force was never allowed to do research flying. When the X-1 came out, the Air Force in 1944 contracted with Bell to build three X-1s. And those three X-1s uh, were built by Bell. Who had the responsibility for research flying? NASA or NACA, National Advisory Committee for another. In those days, so it's different. and. And consequently, and they guarded that right very jealously. And they did all the research flying on all airplanes that were flown by the military or bought by the military. The Air Force in 1944 contracted with Bell to build three X-1s. NACA controlled the programs. Consequently, they used civilian test pilots. And when the X-1 became available for its first flight in 45, who flew it? Civilian pilots. And uh, the first pilot was, that flew the airplane, Jack Williams was his name. He flew the airplane 10 power flights in, in Florida, which had a 10,000-foot runway, and he creamed it on a couple landings. Then he killed himself in a P-39 Cleveland Air Races. Then they assigned another civilian pilot to the program named Slick Goodland. And Slick Goodland then in 45 and 46, and in January 47, he flew the airplane 20 powered flights and took it out to point eight Mach. Now, we'd been fighting a war at point eight Mach in Mustangs, which was a max speed. You get it, diving it, you gain a lot of buffeting and control reversals and things like that. So Slick Goodland flew it, 20 powered flights, took it out to point eight. Hell, we've been fighting a war at point eight in, in Mustangs. Mm -hmm. You know, so he, he's not finding out anything. So then phase two called to take it to 1.1 Mach. And so he had his lawyer work up a letter with the U.S. Air Force, a contract, to pay him $150,000 to take the airplane supersonic. And that's when, for the first time, the Air Force bowed its back, took the airplane away from NACA, uh, the control of the airplane away from NACA, and assigned it military pilots. And I and Bob Hoover were 
were selected. I was selected because I was intimately familiar with high pressure gas that my dad worked with in, in the natural gas field of West Virginia. He was a driller and had a couple of strings of tools and I was intimately familiar with the diaphragms they used to control these 6,000 pounds of pressure in these wells. And X1 had used 6,000 pounds of nitrogen gas pressure through dome regular. It's something I'd worked on as a kid. And so I was a natural and I obviously could fly. And the old man picked me to, to fly the X1 and that was the reason. I, I, it, was, it wasn't a simple system, meaning when I went into Rife Field in, in July 1945, I was assigned there. I had my choice of any base in the United States because I'd been shot down and was an evadee, and they, the Air Force rewarded us evadees and ex-prisoners of war by letting you select any base you want. So I, I asked for right field only because it was the closest base to my hometown. Mm -hmm. And when I reported in, guys looked at my records, and I would served as a crew chief, as GI, I was chief of maintenance in my fighter squadron, and I was trained in maintenance. So they had an opening in the, in the fighter test section for a maintenance officer, and that's where they assigned me. Now, I got two hangars full of fighter, first jets, and all these things. My job as a maintenance officer, when they work on an airplane, I have to fly it just to check out the system. And, hey, man, I was flying every damn airplane in the Air Force. I enjoyed it. Now, what was the feeling there? These professional test pilots had degrees, and I only had a high school ed education. Was a maintenance officer. They were really ticked off. You know, the a maintenance officer. They asked me when the air time do the air shows, and old General Boyd said, "You do the show," and they didn't like that a bit. But I had no test pilot experience, but I could fly, and so he said. You want to go to the test pilot school? And I said, well, I don't think I could hack a damn thing because I only, only have a high school education. He said, they, lots of professional test pilots would love to tutor you. <laughs> and it, it, wasn't, it was funny. So he picked me, put me in a test pilot school, and I used to put on all the air shows. Now, when I got out of the test pilot school and Slick Goodland made this big leap, I won $150,000. That's when the Air Force took over for the first time doing research flying, and I was the guy picked to do the, with the X-1. And obviously I was successful. I was assigned to the X-1A, first airplane that went above Mach 2. I was flying it. And then the Navy was is a much slicker professional PR command than the Air Force was. Air Force was new, it was Army, run by the Army. You know, it wasn't U.S. Air Force. It was Army Air Corps. We're speaking with aviation legend General Charles Yeager. Well, General, speaking of PR issues, I guess that in the wake of, of you breaking the sound barrier, uh, there was some, uh, I guess you'd say, inter-service rivalry about, you know, the fact that the plane was dropped out of an aircraft and, and there was some issue with it, you know, to really be someone that broke the sound barrier to take off from the ground. The Navy puts out these goddamn releases to news. It's a gimmick. It has to be dropped from a B-29. Now, we've got an airplane coming out using the same engine as the X-1, 
a D5 Phase II swept wing airplane, and this airplane is going to take off from the ground and go supersonic. Well, they ended up, they had to drop it from a B-29. So Jack Ridley and I, we talked about it quite a bit, making a ground takeoff with the X-1. Well, the airplane was not designed with the landing gear that would support the weight of the airplane with, with, with more than half fuel. Right. And when you flew, and if you couldn't get the engine running, you had to jettison all the fuel before you landed or the gear would collapse. So it's kind of a touchy situation. I remember the Navy put out all this propaganda. They were better than the Air Force. And so I was back at a convention in Washington, and the Ridley and I had talked about making a ground takeoff and how we'd do it. And uh, I was asked by the Secretary of the Air Force, do you think you could make a ground takeoff? And I said, you know, it's pretty high goddamn conversation with Chief of Staff of the Air Force and Secretary of the Air Force. I said, well, we've talked about it. I think, I don't know if we can, we, but we'll look into it. And he said, okay, check, check and get back to me. And uh, so I went back out to Ridley, and we sat down and talked about it. And he said, the problem was we burned liquid oxygen. We had no way of measuring liquid oxygen in volume. If you fill the tank full of 330 gallons of liquid oxygen in the tank, and the tank after the wing was alcohol, water alcohol. Now, we could measure that. So uh, the problem was really said, I think we can, I think if we put on new tires and, and, and get everything lubed up, I think we can, this airplane, if we don't go above half fuel, you can get this airplane airborne before the gear fails. And he, uh, we worked out and we got aboard, got two by six and I sawed it out, the contour of the bottom of the wing, we put it against it. And old Jack Ridley figures out the mean aerodynamic cord with his slipstick and comes up on the wing where he wants the center of gravity to be. And then he runs a jack under the, the two by six board and jacked it up and we put the tanks held 320 gallons, and we measured in 160 gallons of water alcohol. We could measure that with two and a half gallon buckets if we filled it up. Then we got the X1 hose of liquid oxygen pumping in the front tank, and then turned it on until, and really had put a jack under the center of gravity where he wanted it, and when the airplane balanced, then we knew we had the right amount of fuel. That, that, that is very ingenious. And the whole thing, if you ran all four chambers, would run 100 seconds. That's all. We put the fuel in, measured in with buckets, and got it up to exactly 160 gallons. Then we hooked up the liquid oxygen, pumped liquid oxygen until the airplane balanced. Then we towed it down the back, bottom end of the lake, and it's starting to boil off. So we... We kept a couple, three minutes of extra liquid oxygen because we knew it'd boil off. And we took it down there, and I got in the cockpit and fired all four chambers. We broke ground about 1,200 feet and pulled the airplane up in an Immelman, rolled out 23,000 feet at uh, 1.3 Mach. 
a hundred seconds from the time I ignited, and, and we're at 23,000 feet and supersonic. I had a, a whole bunch of pr press people up there, but the Navy really got pissed. <laughs> but anyway, that's that's the way things were were done in the old days, and where I fit in the X-1 was I not only was a pilot, I knew what the hell was going on mechanically. So you save your neck. General, we have many accomplishments of yours to talk about, but one of the things that always impressed me the most about your story was a small incident that comes out of your autobiography. You were learning to fly P-39s, and one of the ranchers out near your airbase mentioned he was thinking of topping one of his trees. And I guess you got the idea you might just do it for him with an airplane. We got to know the ranchers and Pop Cl Clifford and Mom Clifford. They'd invite us out on a weekend. They had two, two sons and a daughter, and we'd go out there, and, man, they'd feed us steaks and cakes and pie. And it was really fun. It's only about, you know, an hour's drive in a Jeep from a, from Tonopah Air Base and is at the Stone Cabin Ranch. And they uh, they were really, really nice people. And we'd go out and we'd buzz them. Now old Joe, old Pop Clifford, if he was out there waving a sheet, that meant come over to the house for dinner. And uh, if we waggle our wings on the way in, meant yes we can, or or waggle on the wings leaving we can't. Okay. And it we'd go out there and boy they'd feed us pies and cakes and steaks. They had cattle everywhere. And uh, so old Joe, we're looking. We'd come through there between his house and this big pile of rocks. And he, and uh, I said, Joe, how about you going out and cutting that this damn tree with? about eight feet tall and about about that big around. And got that cause getting in their way when we were buzzed. We can come through lower that way. So he said, well, okay. But he, he didn't. I, I, so I went out there with my third night, laid the wing about four feet above the ground and cut the tree off. And then I came back, well, you got a big dent in the leading edge of the wing. And the ops officer said, what in the hell are you doing? I said, well, I hit a bird. He said, "What well, so much must have been carrying a big nest. Got <laughs> had a bunch of brush and crap in the wing. So I got grounded for a week, and they wouldn't let me fly. We're having this chat out here at Grass Valley Airport, and I, I certainly want to encourage our listeners to come out and check out that the F-104 you've got over here on the grounds. I don't know military aircraft very well, but you, I look at that, and it's, 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 it's a pipe with tiny wings on it, and, and you flew that thing with a rocket engine on it. It's a heck of a story. Basically, what, what you see out there is that F-104A, but I was the first, first military pilot to fly the 104. Uh, here again, civilian pilots, when the 104 came out, Tony LeVere, who was the chief test pilot for Lockheed, flew the first flight. I chased him in an F-86, and Tony couldn't see very good, and we had runways marked on the lake bed, and he said, now look, if I'm not lined up on that lake bed, you come up and kind of nudge me over until I am, but don't say nothing, because he was too damn proud that he couldn't see. And so he, he, he was a little off, I lined him up, and he landed. Now, after he landed, he's done his job. He said, collect big bonus for the first flight. Then I get in the airplane and take the airplane up and I spun it and developed a spin recovery technique on the first flight I was in the airplane. 
and came down and was explaining to the Lockheed engineers the recovery technique for the T-tail, T-tail airplane, like when the airplane spun flat, it just you know spuns like this. Well, I developed, I had no, you're out of control aerodynamically, so I ran the engine up to 100%. Now you got an engine that's rotating at 100%. Now, and the airplane rotating, the gyroscopic effect of the engine precess the nose down. And once you get the nose down, then you pick up speed and recover from the spin. It, that, I knew that, L, and that's we used that in luck. And uh, so he really got he really got mad. He said, "You son of a bitch, you, you beat me out of a twenty thousand dollar bonus to develop a spin recovery technique on the." F-104, and I said, well, good. <laughs> yeah, I'm we're sick and tired of paying these civilian test pilots for that we have to do all the work anyway. So mm -hmm. Now, see, NASA didn't have, the, had no capability for space. Mm -hmm. Now, the Air Force had the responsibility for space, and we had the astronaut school at Edwards. I was the commandant as a full colonel. We uh, trained, we had a cheap manned orbital laboratory, just like the labs up there today. And we're using the NF-104s, which could get above 110,000 feet, and to give the student astronauts experience at zero G outside the atmosphere. And it's worked out good. And we were training about 12 pilots a year. Now, 26 of those guys went into space as NASA astronauts when they canceled the school. They didn't want the military in space because they figured that the Russians, if we could keep the military out of space, then the Russians wouldn't develop weapon system. So that's when the schools closed in, in 86 and the whole thing, including my simulators, was turned over to NASA. It was formed, and they were given a responsibility for space. And 26 of the guys that went up in a Gemini Apollo and, and the space shuttle were graduates of the school. And we should note household names, Frank Borman, Neil Armstrong, yeah. all graduates of your school. Well, Frank Borman was on, was on my staff, Tom Safford, Joe Engel. One of the things, uh, like Neil Armstrong, he was a civilian, so he wasn't Navy, he wasn't Air Force. So he solved NASA's problem of not showing preference by picking a Navy or an Air Force guy by picking a civilian. Neil was a civilian. He solved their problem. Tom Wolfe's book, uh, The Right Stuff, was a, was a big hit, and it was also a hit movie. Very enjoyable. Did he get his facts right? I thought he did a very good job. The only thing is Tom Wolfe is not a technical writer. On the NF-104, when I went over the top and the airplane lost a thruster and couldn't get the nose down, I tried to, you know, brief Tom. He tried to write what happened. He tried about five times. I finally sat down and wrote the chapter. Right. And it worked out real good. Yeah. See, Tom Wolfe was faced with a little bit of a problem, and that problem was he was asked to write a book that covered the activities of the original seven astronauts. 
and how they had been blown up by professional PR types right. before they did anything. Right. And then what they saw was that, hell, here are these Air Force guys doing all the test work and some of them killing themselves to support the space program. I, th I thought the, the movie, The Right Stuff, was pretty, pretty educational. Well, General, I, I do want to compliment uh, what a great job you did writing that chapter for Tom Wolfe and, and in your own book. It certainly, it certainly resonated with the public, the idea that I don't think until they written the book, the idea that they were going to put a chimp up and first really struck people of like, that's not a pilot. For me, the part that was so hilarious is, is you were describing some of your fellows coming back to you and they were deciding what to do from your, your training program. And, and to paraphrase you a little bit, you were saying you understood the, the dilemma they were in being overqualified and you noted that you'd hate to sweep out the monkey crap before you climbed into the capsule. The pilots or astronauts in the original or had very little control over their capsule. When Neil, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, Houston took control of the lunar landing module, took it over and landed it. He was having trouble getting it on the moon on the surface. You certainly outlined uh, the, the issues that I think really had been lost in the shuffle with the public of what you what you fellows were doing with the test piloting and the astronaut situation. Yeah. And and when the, when Russians launched the Sputnik, the sort of the panic that overcame everyone, and they wanted to get in a man to space as quick as possible. Yeah. And that, that was sort of under, understood by the public. Yeah, but, but basically what the guys are faced with when they asked the guys at the school who are graduates or in the process of graduating, bring them to Houston and you know, try to recruit them into the astronaut program. And then showing here, you get free houses, you get free this, you get free that. Well, that, that really goes against the military guy's grade. You do something, you do it because it's your duty. And uh, that's, that's the way we felt. And I was sort of disappointed in about half the guys, really, they let that be the, the governing factor. You know, my cut of the time life story. General, I gather you and a lot of the test pilots would get some rest and relaxation at, uh, at Poncho Barnes's resort. Can you tell us a bit about your friend Poncho Barnes? If you go back, there's been two or three movies published about Poncho's life. Her, Thaddeus Lowe, was her grandfather the guy that invented hot air balloons in the artillery spotting in the, in the Mexican War. And she uh, she was from a very well-to-do family. And consequently, she got her pilot's license, and she, was, she used to run guns into Mexico. She spoke Spanish fluently. And uh, she had a, an airplane that I flew in, in the down at Mexico with her, and consequently, we went out to a Yaqui Indian village. She knew the the mayor of Hermosilla, old Don Pinos was his name, and she borrowed some horses, and she and I rode with pack horse out to Yaqui Indian village, rode all day. I had a rifle, and I was deer hunting, and she uh, she spoke. Yaqui Indian language fluently, spoke Spanish fluently, and she was a pretty smart little gal and a hell of a good pilot. 
I just have to quote from you another time because it's such a great quote. You said about her, Poncho's the kind of person who would never use a five or six letter word when a four letter word would do. Well, that, that's <laughs> where she was. You know, and if you didn't like it, you didn't have to listen. Well, Jenna, you've been, you've been retired from active testing, but you've been working, I understand, to promote flying among young people. Uh, this interview is going to air on UC Davis's station and up in, in Chico as well. I mean, I know University Airport's a spot where a lot of young people can go learn to fly. That's where I started lessons as a student. Uh, I'd like to close maybe with an appeal for people to go out and, and, and learn how to fly. I, I never saw an airplane on the ground until I was 18 years old and enlisted in the Army Air Corps. What, what we've done is helped a lot of students financially and the like, and, and Victoria kind of monitors the Jaeger Foundation, which we've received money, you know, donated for the foundation. That's the way we dispense it out. Well, General Chuck Yeager, it's been, it's been my great pleasure to speak with you, and I, and I hope, that, uh, hope I can come back again and do it again sometime. Well, it's a pleasure to educate you. <laughs> and, I've, and I've been educated. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I must say it's been a great privilege to be able to sit down from time to time with a guest as distinguished as General Chuck Yeager and talk about his life. It's truly been an honor, and we thank him very much for taking the time to speak with us. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for more in Segment 3.